Welcome to Fire of Genius, a podcast dedicated to all things intellectual property presented by the Indiana University Maurer School of Law's IP Theory Journal. My name is Shrija Dutta, and I am a tool here at Maurer. My fellow associates are going to introduce themselves now. Hi, my name is Carly Hinton, and I'm also a tool at Maurer. Hi, my name is Yunyi Gu, and I'm also a tool at Maurer. Today, we have Professor Marshall Liefer joining us. We are so excited to have Professor Liefer here with us today. Professor Liefer is a distinguished scholar in intellectual property law and a university fellow, and teaches a range of IP courses, including trademark and unfair competition law. Before entering into the teaching profession, he practiced as an attorney advisor to the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and was a practicing trademark attorney in New York and Paris, concentrating on international trademark issues. On today's episode, we will be discussing the implications of Abitron Austria GmbH v. Hetronic International and the limitations on extraterritorial trademark infringement recovery. This was a highly awaited case, and the decision came down on the very last day. Carly is going to get us started. So, in this case, there is a trademark dispute between Hetronic, a U.S. company that manufactures radio remote controls, and Abitron, a group of foreign distributors and related entities. Hetronic sued Abitron for violating two provisions of the Lanham Act, 1114 and 1125, by using Hetronic's trademarks on products sold globally without authorization. The lower courts ruled in favor of Hetronic, allowing damages related to Abitron's worldwide use of the trademarks and issuing a permanent worldwide injunction against Abitron's use of the marks. On appeal, the Supreme Court considered whether these Lanham Act provisions have extraterritorial reach. Using a two-step framework for the presumption against extraterritoriality, the court held the provisions do not apply abroad and only cover claims where the infringing, quote, use in commerce, end quote, occurred domestically. The majority opinion by Justice Alito and joined by four justices vacated the lower court decision and remanded further proceedings consistent with its domestic use in commerce standard. Justice Sotomayor's concurrence agreed on vacating and remanding but disagreed with the court's extraterritoriality analysis, arguing that the focus should be on the likelihood of domestic consumer confusion. So, Professor Liefer, do you have any comments on the background of the case? Well, yes, I'd like to go into some of the facts of this case. It's a, a kind of an interesting in a way to, to, um, to see how uh, these sorts of disputes arise. Uh, Abitron at one time was a, a licensee uh, of product. But Abitron, uh, after it uh, ceased being a licensee, continued to uh, use the, the mark. And if you take a look at the two uh, the two products, uh, it doesn't you don't have to be a, a trademark expert to see a clear infringement here because you have the same mark and the same trade dress used on these uh, products. The other thing I like to say about this is the um, kind of unusual uh, unusual decision by the uh, the Tenth Circuit. Uh, Circuit in Oklahoma, uh, in which uh, they uh, imposed a kind of a, a $96 million remedy um, on Abitron. And it was based on a, a number of um, factors. Uh, part of uh, uh, the recovery was based on goods that uh, were sold by uh, Abitron and its intermediaries into the United States. But uh, another part of uh, this $96 million was. Uh, is the uh, amount of goods that were actually sold in, in Europe, which never really got into the United States. 
and the third basis of this recovery of $96 million was simply a, a diversion of trade from what Hedronic would have sold, but Abitron sold instead. So you have a, a kind of a tripartite uh, uh, basis for this a huge recovery. When you take a look at the recovery itself, only 3% of uh, the, uh, the infringing materials were actually sold into the United States. The rest of it was sold abroad. So that's one thing that makes this kind of case kind of uh, interesting and also kind of dramatic is the basis upon which uh, the, uh, the judgment was held. The court, in uh, coming to this uh, judgment, uh, applied a uh, what is known as the effects test. And the effects test is very simple. Uh, the, uh, you can uh, apply the Trademark Act or the Trademark Act extraterritorially uh, if uh, the, uh, the extraterritorial infringement has a, an effect on the United States. Now, in Oklahoma, in the Oklahoma District Court, the, uh, the format that they used was whether there was a substantial effect in the United States. And there was a substantial effect. If you think about 3% of $96 million, we have a substantial effect. And this is the very basis for, for the judgment. So, but the effects test has been used um, throughout the circuit courts. And every circuit court seems to have a little bit different linguistic format. Some would say a substantial effect. Others would say some effect. Others would say significant effect. It's, it's hard to know how much difference that makes, but when you talk to attorneys in this field, and also in my own experience, this can lead to some forum shopping, uh, and it also leads clearly to uncertainty if you don't agree on uh, one, uh, one format or one uh, rule that you want to apply in, uh, in the federal court system. So it comes as no surprise that uh, this case was taken by, uh, by the Supreme Court. And when you think about it, this is the first time in seven years that the Supreme Court has actually entertained any uh, conclusion about the extraterritoriality of the Lanham Act. So that's why uh, this case was uh, awaited by, uh, by the trademark bar. Maybe there will be some sort of harmonization of uh, these uh, district rules to be found in the circuit court system. But yet what we got was something uh, quite different and something quite unique and dramatic. And that has to do with uh, Justice Alito's opinion. Now, the previous Supreme Court case was called Steele versus Bull of a Watch. And Steele versus Bull of a Watch really was the, uh, was the case that uh, established this effects test that we've had ever since. And um, now what the Supreme Court did is it did not overturn Bull of a Watch. It didn't say that the effects test no longer applied. It just went on its own way and came out with its own conclusion about how we to apply the Lanham Act extraterritorially, if at all. And so this is where we come to uh, the sort of the modern view of what is and what is the warrant for extraterritoriality in a statute that we have in the United States. Uh, this um, issue is not new because it has been litigated uh, very recently, and it comes as no surprise that Justice Alito and Sotomayor, who wrote, who wrote a concurring opinion in this case, uh, were at loggerheads for, for a while on the 
application, the extraterritorial application of U.S. law. So, but let's now return to the court's reasoning in Abitron, how it got to its uh, conclusion in uh, Manning, the, the case um, uh, that we have before us. The court dis- discussed uh, uh, first the, the kind of the two-step test that we're using uh, currently in uh, judging extraterritoriality. And um, to decide whether a, a statute has extraterritorial effect, what we the first thing that you take a look at, the first part of that step is, is whether uh, the statute itself expresses that the statute is to be applied extraterritorially. Now, the Lanham Act doesn't say that specifically, but what it does say in Section 1127, it states that the Lanham Act applies to all commerce which may lawfully be regulated by commerce. And some have said that this does give a kind of a warrant for extraterritoriality. Justice Alito did not agree with that. So what you do is you go to the second step. And here's the second step. The second step is a, is a kind of a, a broader one uh, and uh, is, is certainly the most troublesome in, uh, in application. The key factor of the second step is to determine the focus of uh, the congressional concern uh, underlying uh, the statutory provision at issue. And uh, Alito determined that the focus of the Lanham Act is the defendant's conduct, which in this instance is the unauthorized use of commerce that is likely to cause confusion. In this case, uh, the court determined that Abitron's conduct, its use in commerce of uh, Hedtronic's trademark, did not occur in the United States, and so the Lanham Act did not apply. So this is a major departure from the effects test that we had seen uh, previously during the last 70 years. What this test says is that if the location of the conduct does not occur in the United States, there is no basis of applying the Lanham Act extraterritorially. In effect, if you look at this, what it does is it cuts back to zero the extraterritorial application or ambit of the Lanham Act. And in that sense, it is a very dramatic uh, case that has been decided. We just have a few questions for you. Obviously, it's a landmark case and nothing has changed in decades. So, could you get us started off, please? Which opinion in this case do you think offered the best statutory interpretation of the Lanham Act provisions? And should textualism or purposivism guide interpretation of intellectual property statutes? Well, I, I, uh, I can answer this uh, very specifically in taking a look at the uh, concurring opinion which was written by uh, Sotomayor, she did agree that this case should be remanded to the lower courts and uh, agreed with the court's decision, but she uh, disagreed completely on all fours with the court's reasoning. And so even though this is concurrence, it reads like a dissent. And what she says is that Alito missed the, missed the, uh, the entire focus of the Lanham Act, the step two of determining extraterritoriality. And she says that it's it's not use in commerce which uh, is the important factor here. The use in commerce is a factor to take into account whether someone has a trademark at all, but it has nothing to do with, um, uh, or little to do, 
with trademark infringement. Trademark infringement is based on likelihood of confusion. And she says this is the real focus of the Lanham Act. And so, uh, therefore, she disagreed completely with how uh, Justice Alito tackled this case. Uh, and the outcome of uh, interpretation, such as uh, Sotomayor would take in this case, would lead to very, very different results in, uh, in cases dealing with this uh, infringement abroad. And so uh, I think that that's uh, something that should be pointed out. Now, uh, we do have Alito's uh, opinion, and, uh, and that's the, the rule of the case, but um, some, you know, some people believe that his opinion is a very uh, artificial and kind of textualist opinion, which uh, is really not based on uh, practical reason or uh, even a reasonable interpretation of the Lanham Act. It's simply an on-off switch where the location of the of the infringing conduct occurred. If it occurred in the United States or abroad. If it occurred abroad, then Madam Act has nothing to say about it. Thank you so much. So, Professor Luther, um, are there any open issues left unresolved by the bright line rules? Well, I, I, I think there are. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, this decision, even though it purports to establish a bright line rule, probably opens up more questions than it answers. And I can think of two just general broad areas in which this can occur. Uh, one occurs in sales to intermediaries. Uh, you know, what, for example, if Abitron was, uh, is selling to commercial intermediaries that resold the goods into the United States. Certainly, Abitronic could sue the intermediary, could sue the person that was selling the goods actually in the United States. But intermediaries, unfortunately, are thinly capitalized and can easily be changed. Could Abitronic, under those circumstances, pierce the formality and sue Abitron directly, either for primary or secondary liability, such as contributory infringement? Uh, would that require Abitronic to show that Abitron knew where the intermediary was selling? Um, would it be enough to show that the intermediary was buying so much Stock that Abitron had to know that some of it was designed to leave Germany, and must it also show that the shipments uh, did arrive in the United States? So that's one set of issues: sales to intermediaries. The second set of issues are classically online issues, and the way that uh, so much of trademark of, of commerce uh, occurs today, and the sale of trademark goods. And so um, the the ruling seems to almost be an anachronism in some peculiar way, because it doesn't even mention infringing uses that appear on the internet. You know, what if an allegedly infringing company sells to the U.S. online? Would it make a difference uh, if the website stated that it was willing to ship to the United States? And what if? Uh, if the statement were merely, we ship worldwide, or would it make a difference if the allegedly infringing company quoted prices in U.S. dollars? And we can go on and on. Um, actually, uh, previous uh, cases have dealt with uh, these issues uh, of online uh, commerce. But in particular, I think that um, what's going to happen if a company specifically targets uh, U.S. consumers, but does so from a location abroad that is not in the United States under Alito's location rule, would, would this uh, avoid the liability of someone who, who actually uh, targets uh, U.S. customers in a, a very uh, specific way? 
that so those are the two questions I think that are left uh, from the court, and there of course there can be others, but I think that those kind of summarize what might be some working problems in the future. Thank you for highlighting those. So, looking forward, what are some practical strategies for trademark owners after this decision? Well, you know, that's the big problem, because uh, what are we going to do? We have this decision that seems to significantly cut back extraterritoriality of trademarks, practically to nothing in some ways. So what you're left with, and much of the commentary that you'll see on this case, is said that now trademark owners have to shift their attention to registration strategies abroad. And, of course, if you have the wherewithal to get a European trademark and to register in a number of other countries around the world, that's just fine. I mean, after all, we do have registration treaties like the Madrid Protocol that facilitate registration worldwide. But um, registration isn't a panacea because, after all, it's a very expensive proposition. Not as you know, trademark registration isn't as, as expensive as patent. It's, it's certainly something that uh, is quite costly. And if you look at this from the standpoint of a, a medium uh, a small company, uh, then uh, you're really looking at something that might be a deterrence to, to registration, and therefore uh, such companies would be simply left out of the system. Well, not to mention a tech startup who might be operating on a shoestring. How are they going to, to do a registration strategy in, in today's world in which infringement can occur very quickly on, on the Internet and, and transpire worldwide at, at a moment's notice? So uh, I don't think registration is a panacea. And even for a large company that can register, maybe it won't be able to obtain a registration in certain countries. And um, you'll have all kinds of formalities of, of, uh, of that nature that you have to overcome. I think uh, for the moment, we're in a, uh, in a difficult situation. Okay, so in Abitron, the minority suggested that it is now up to Congress to correct the court's limited reading of the Lanham Act. Is this a possibility that you foresee? Well, ultimately, uh, Congress may want to wait for more clarity about how Abitron is uh, going to be applied. Because the, uh, the lower courts could modify Avatron in, in certain uh, significant ways that uh, we can't really uh, foresee at this time. But I, I think that there is a possibility um, that uh, this could occur. And the most dramatic change would be to simply enshrine extraterritoriality expressly within the Lanham Act uh, as a cause of action. But uh, the problem with that is, is that might... Uh, directly confront comedy concerns, and uh, these were brought up, incidentally, in a, in, a, in a kind of an interesting amicus brief that the uh, European uh, Commission had drafted. But despite that, uh, Congress uh, could more delicately clarify that the triggering conduct uh, for liability is likelihood of consumer confusion in the United States versus the use in commerce formulation that Alito had used. And I think that might be the most practical avenue for a congressional change. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, with that, let's close out this episode. Professor Liefer, we want to thank you for being here. 
And thank you for joining us on this episode of Fire of Genius. You can follow us on Twitter at CIPRMauer, I-P-T-H, or reach out to us on our website at iptheory.indiana.edu. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next week.